Okay, Genesis chapter 13. Here we go. Now, uh, the title of the sermon today is Repent and Return. I say that because that is exactly what Abraham is going to do. We do know from our, our sermon last week, as we looked at Genesis chapter 12, that Abraham had decided to rely on self-reliance rather than on the promises of God. And then having gone down into the land of Egypt because he was no longer trusting in God and the promised land that he had given him, he then has to do a little bit of half deceit, half truth, but nothing good in, in all of it as he offers his wife to Pharaoh. And there's Sarah, the, the, the vessel of the promise of all of God's redemption for the blessing of all nations. And Abraham hands her over to a Gentile king, into his harem. But God, nonetheless, was still faithful. And interestingly, it says that God inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because he wanted to protect Sarah. But God was still there. And at the end of it, Abraham is restored and brought back into the promised land, being reminded of this intervention by God that allows him to come out intact with Sarah intact to be able to go back and really reclaim what it was that he was always meant to be. And so now we begin to study in Genesis 13. So Abraham went up from Egypt to the Negev, just as a kind of a, a bit of um, visual here for you. Canaan, which is ultimately will become Israel, is obviously pictured here. And then down below that is Egypt. Uh, this is actually a, a Google satellite image that we've got there. You can see how well watered the delta is there from the Nile of Egypt and also then how stark it is in southern Israel where uh, Abraham had been sojourning. He, he, of course, out of distrust, makes his way down to where the grass is greener, or really where there's grass versus no grass. Uh, but as, as we read this, he is going to do an about face. And what we will have here is one of the most visual uh, um, representations of repentance. And as a matter of fact, in the Bible, this is the very first example of repentance that we encounter. But before I read on, it's helpful to have a real visual depiction of repentance because it's a term that we tend to want to define ourselves. And, and there's been a lot of times in my life where I thought that I'd repented and I point to that as like, that's when I repented. And interestingly, in defining it ourselves, even Webster defines repentance as to feel quite sorry over one's sin, to rue one's sin. The, the idea of just feeling bad seems to hang all over the idea of repentance. And it's, it's interesting that the, the word repentance at its, at its essence has actually nothing to do with that. And it has nothing to do with looking back and a trying, trying to apply enough pain to your past behavior, hoping that the association of the pain with that bad behavior will somehow extinguish it. It is so much more powerful than that. It is a God phenomenon. It is God initiated, God ordained, and God completed. And for it to just simply be, maybe if I feel bad enough, I won't do that thing again, only to 
not feel so bad another month or two later and no longer have the restraint of kind of feeling bad that keeps you from doing that thing, whether it's clicking on that link or flirting with that guy in the office or eating that stuff that you shouldn't be going after, whatever it might be, the minute that that pain fades, if that's repentance, well, where's the power in that? Because then everybody's testimony is, yeah, I was, I was delivered for 19 days. And then back I went. Oh, and I felt terrible again. I was delivered. And well, at that time it was only 14 days. But then, I, I mean, what is that? There, there was a, a point in my life where I felt like this was repentance in my life. When I was a sophomore at University of Pennsylvania, I was, I was taking a, a class in uh, international economics. And that class was kicking my tail. Uh, seriously so. And then I made the greatest mistake of my life, from, from my perspective at the time. I let the blue book that I had smuggled into the examination room show just a little bit out from underneath my thigh. That was my great mistake in my mind then. Because what was I doing? I had smuggled a blue book. You, you take exams in blue books uh, back then? I don't know if you probably just think it into an iPad now or something. But anyway, back then, you, you, you wrote these things out in, in, in these books that were literally blue. Pencils, very analog, all the way. But anyway, so I, I smuggled this blue book in. And, and as the professor was handing out the exams themselves, you know, you could just tell, like, I saw his eye go down, but he was trying to be cool. Like, I saw his eye go down and see that little strip of blue. And, and right away, I thought, oh, man, the jig is up. Like, this is going to get me. But I thought, ah, I don't know, but I'm going to get enough anyway. Let me see if I can just kind of make my way through and see what happens. But in the middle of the exam, my conscience kind of got to me. And I, I went down and I talked to the professor and said, hey, you know, before I get to the second half of this exam, I brought in a blue book that had the equations for this half coming up. I, I, I just, I just got to turn it into you now and see whatever it is you think I should do. He said very sternly, you need to then come when I have office hours. Come when I have office hours. There was no, well, I'm glad you turned it at this. Nothing like that. No appreciation of the fact that, hey, I'm, I'm coming forward before using that. Says, give, me, give me everything that you have in your hands right now. And I, and I will see you on, on Wednesday. And so, you know, off, off I go, do that. And the night before, I remember praying like I had never prayed before. And I was begging God and I was wailing and I was making some pretty good deals with God of like all the great stuff that I was going to do for him and all the stuff that I wouldn't keep on doing as a full-fledged member of the worst fraternity at University of Pennsylvania. All right. And I was like, you'll see God, you know, please, please, please to, to deliver me, deliver me. I go in and I begin to talk to the professor about what's going on and about how I'm, you know, I have to work three jobs and, and you know, graduation's coming up. And because, like, like a lot of schools, there was an honor code. And if you cheat, there's no like, well, I'm giving you an F. No, you're out of here. Right? And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, the shame on my family. Here I am. I'm supposed to be the one that's going to kind of really do right and do well. And oh, the shame of all that. As I'm talking to him, I then begin to keep telling my story and all the difficult, and then I begin to cry as I'm telling the story. Like so much so that I've got to like get tissues. I'm talking like double clutching, snot running, crying, like full on crying. And here's this, the, the crazier part. 
as I'm crying, I'm saying to myself, this is awesome. <laughs> oh, how perfect is it? I, I think I am, I'm selling it. I think I'm really selling it. But I, I, didn't, I wasn't like that messed up in my head. I was like, well, you know, of course I'm crying because I'm really sincere about, about all of this. Then he kind of goes on and he kind of gives his verdict and he says, all right, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put a file in your permanent record. I'm going to fail you for the class, but I'm not going to bring you before the honor board. And immediately, as, as soon as I heard all of that, I was like, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. You'll see, you know, out the door I went and guess what? The tears stopped immediately. Why? Was, was I actually saddened that I had undermined the integrity that would have pleased God? Was I saddened that, that I was going to bring shame uh, upon, upon myself when, when I should instead be trying to pursue the righteousness of God? No, there was none of that. It was all about damage control for myself. And the minute that the damage was controlled, tears stopped. Just like that. And if you want to have even better evidence of whether that was repentance or not, and it was not, by the way, it was just merely the, the, the terror of my own personal inconvenience that brought me to a sorrow that all had to do with my own skin. But about another semester later, to, to, to show that there was no repentance, I cheated again. And so for certainly someone who's been delivered, who sees differently, who has had a God deliverance, where now I no longer regard anyone from the same point of view that I did anymore, where I have a different worldview, this transcendent gift of repentance from God now upon me, now keeps me onto a wonderful course of honor and righteousness. No, none of that. It's all about, I, I, I messed up, I, I feel bad, this is about me, 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 me. And if that has been any sort of an experience that you've had, trying to see some sort of a sin out of your life, or even the entire course of your life be, be, be different, and even though there's been tears and there have been prayers and there have been bargains and all of that, that is not repentance. Not by a long shot. Repentance is such a transformation of the way that you make sense of everything the fact that you just look at everything so, from a completely different lens, from the mind of flesh to the mind of Christ, that even now the way that you make sense of everything really does bring you to a place where a hundred times out of a hundred, you're, you're not going to cross that boundary line with that girl. You're not going to click on that link. You're not going to throw out that joke among the guys. It, 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 would, it would be as repulsive to you as you could imagine and also as idiotic as well when real repentance has really come into our lives from God the, the fact that such a phenomenon of wonder from God has been so trashed is really such a real shame but with Abraham here we have got a real situation of someone repenting right here on the pages of scripture so back we go Abram had become very wealthy. I'm in verse 2. I've made it through verse 1 so far, in case you're wondering. <laughs> Abram had become very wealthy in livestock, in silver, and gold. You know, my first point here is, God's kindness kindles repentance. Abraham was in Egypt 
perhaps even under a death sentence if if things really got found out of all of his scheming and machinations of deceit. But yet, in the midst of all of that, God, the hero, flies to his rescue. Like, if anyone deserves to just kind of let the consequences of sin play themselves out right now, my goodness, it would have been Abraham at this point, and God would just pick someone else to be able to see the great promise that would bless all nations, be that conduit. But, but nonetheless, he stayed with Abraham. And we're going to see this blessing that brings him back. So I'll come back to, to, to some more on this, of course. But let me just read the passage so that we can get the bigger picture here. So Abraham had become very wealthy in livestock and silver and gold. First time silver and gold is mentioned in the Bible. By the way, this is all ill-gotten gain, in case we're wondering. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel. Kind of, you know, you see him kind of popping around. By the way, he's retracing his exact steps of the way that he went into his faithless journey into Egypt. From place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and I where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Suffice it to say, he's actually literally reversed everything that he's done and now has gone back to the love that he had at first. Moving on. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. By, by the way, rarely does the Bible present, especially in the New Testament, but even here in the Old, this idea of wealth and prosperity as a blessing. It's a snare from the words of Jesus, from Paul, as well as right here in the precipitation of all the mess that's about to occur. And quarreling, verse 7, arose between Abram's herdsmen and Lot's. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So there's difficulty, of course, because they've got so much stuff that they need to take care of and herds that need grass and uh, uh, grazing land. But yet in the midst of all of this, there's quarreling. The word quarreling is, is also the word that's used for lawsuit. So this idea of I've got, a, I've got a real lawsuit that I want to bring up with you. Lot's herdsmen and Abraham's herdsmen would perhaps have actually have uh, experienced themselves. Uh, interesting that they can't really do well with one another, but yet the dreaded Canaanites and Perizzites are among them, and somehow they can get along with them. Just a side note. So Abram said to Lot, verse 8, let's not have any quarreling, this lawsuit between you and me, or between your herdsmen and mine. We're close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. And at this point, any of the early Israel that would have been reading this book would have held their breath. Because what Abraham is about to do is so trusting and so far from entitlement and so deeply humble that they would have been in awe. Abraham is the senior. Lot is the junior. Abraham is the, the reciprocal, I mean, the, the, the recipient of the promise of the land and now he actually, in his trust, is able to offer up the land. Later on, he's going to offer up Isaac. 
in, in his repentance. Now he's actually offering up the land. Is not the land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked around and saw. Remember that phrase, we'll come back to it later, that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, when they were in Ur of the Chaldeans, they were in that Tigris-Euphrates Valley, the very area where the Garden of Eden may have been. So it may have been that Lot was thinking, wow, you know, we, we were able to be in the area of the Garden of Eden, but we never could go into the Garden of Eden. Maybe this is going to be some sort of a reclamation of paradise and paradise restored. And I'm going to go down there and see if maybe that's what I get to be able to experience. And he actually leaves the promised land. Because it'll later on say that Abraham stayed in Canaan, but Lot ventured out of the promised land and that area south down by the Dead Sea is so far south that it actually extends out beyond the area of promise of God. But it's what he wanted because he had gotten a taste of Egypt, courtesy of his uncle Abraham. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain. That's the verse that shows us that he left the territory of promise. And he pitched his tents near Sodom. Ominous sounding. And it'll come back in a couple chapters. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Now even though Sodom and Gomorrah were outside of the promised land, it's not as though God just has jurisdiction or concern over just the promised land. And all nations, no matter how far they may be from God, all nations, no matter what God they claim to be able to follow, no matter what their religious that they, they offer up is, all nations are under the righteousness and the sovereignty of God. And for any that would not honor Him and follow Him, there is then the condemnation and the judgment of God. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted with him, verse 14, look around from where you are to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west, all the land that I, that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could be, so, so that, so if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Astounding promise. Go walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I am giving it to you. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents. And I love the way it ends. There he built an altar to the Lord. Amen. And we see a real return on the part of Abraham. But why? Why did he return? Did, was he suddenly so conscious stricken? I believe that the reason that he returned is because God's kindness kindles repentance. As it says in Romans chapter 2, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? God has probably given you opportunity after opportunity to come back to him when certainly consequences could have come raining down upon your head, my head, in many a situation. What Paul is saying here, and what Abraham realized there, 
is this is none other than the intervention of kindness and love of God helping me, giving me enough space to recognize where I'm meant to be is not down here in shame in Egypt, in opposition to God, living in opposition to His very will for my life, but to finally just surrender over and align myself with His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And as God has perhaps stayed His hand from any consequence in your life or my life, my goodness, we need to be keenly aware of that and realize what it is that God is doing in that very moment. Or perhaps you're trying to figure out your relationship with God and you've made some overtures and you've maybe backed off. And in the midst of this is to realize that God has done the ultimate in trying to help us to realize, come on back. I want you back. I love what Peter says about this regarding Jesus. The, the greatest of all demonstrations that he wants you back. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? So that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Why the cross? Why the demonstration? Why the wrestling in the garden? Why ultimately did he fight so hard to go to the cross? To show you what God really wants for your life. He wants you to die to sin and live for righteousness. You know, but going on from that, Peter says, For you were all like sheep going astray. You've all been down in Egypt. You've all been self-reliant. You've all made compromises. You've all gone into dark, sinful places. But now... Because of this demonstration, now because you have seen and not in any way discounted the fact that Jesus himself bore your sins in his body on the tree, now, he says, you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That's the wonder and the beauty that the God so dearly wants for all of us. Is what we see in Abraham as he returns back. You see Abraham now at the altars that he's making, walking through the land, behaving so completely differently. And you see in him this restoration of the nobility and grandeur of the soul that was instead attended by shame and cowardice and fear when he was outside the will of God. Having repented, here he is again. Now one that we would admire, one that we would actually look to imitate and imitate for sure as he contemplates what God did for him in Egypt. What God did for him as he waited outside that harem. Wondering what was to become of Sarah. What was to become of the promise? What was to become of the family line? Abraham must have been so moved when Pharaoh, despite rebuking him, made it plain to him. You know what? God has still been by your side. And even in the depth of my wanderings and journeys that I, that I had done, the, the, the kind of the shallowness of my cheating in school or the shallowness of my seducing in the bars, the shallowness of my deceit, all of that, in the midst of all of that, Jesus was still 
waiting for me to lift my eyes and regard what he had done on the cross. That international economics test, that deceitful seduction again and again repeated in your life, that lust, that selfish indulgence of the flesh, again and again, all of that, Jesus is wanting me to look up and see, it's actually not here. It's on him. It's on him as he makes it plain on the cross. God's kindness is meant to bring us to repentance. You know, said another way, not from Peter, but Paul this time, for Christ's love compels us. Why are we compelled? Because we're convinced. We're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all. Why? So that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. That's repentance. That's what God wants. That's why he does all of this. Why did Jesus convince us of his love through a cross, through a bloody redemption? Why did he go through all of that? Why? So that we would repent. So that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and was raised again. But make no mistake about it. Why he did all of that is to result in something powerful in our lives. It is a complete reversal of self-reliant, compromised darkness, sin in Egypt. And a return into the light, into the land of promise, into the alignment with God, into a worship of God, into serving Him. And, and that repentance that is in our lives is we no longer live for the smallness of self. But instead, for Him who died for us and was raised again. Now... Jesus is Lord. I'm not Lord. That's a big deal. That is a massive banner that really does show the distinction of the before and after picture of repentance. The before picture is I am Lord. For Abraham, I'm trusted in myself. I am Lord. For me, I am Lord. But guess what? Even while I'm saying I am Lord, guess what I'm doing all through my life? Going to church. Feigning some sort of a complete devotion to Jesus. Even though, bottom line, I am Lord. Why did I even go to University of Pennsylvania? Because they had a great campus ministry? Because I thought I could make a great difference for Jesus Christ? Didn't even cross my mind. I studied the Bible with so many people and I asked them, you made a big decision in your life. You kind of fought to get this assignment, to be at this duty station. Well, we know why they did. But why did you? Was it driven by Jesus? Not I think, oh yeah, in hindsight, I retroactively make it that. No, no, no. You actually sat down and got lots of great input about what is going to best help your family, your marriage, your, your growth as a kid, whatever it might be. What is it that is, that is going to best really help you on a path for Jesus? Because you're no longer living for your own agenda, allegiances, ambitions, any of that. But, but instead that you are now living for Jesus. Who died for you and was raised again. Abraham was now living only for God. As he makes his way back. And begins to operate under that banner. That, that Jesus is Lord. God is Lord in his life. I think you've got to be real on this. It's so easy to think. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I actually really do live my life for him and not for me. Really. Think about the big decisions in your life. How about the person that you married? 
Do you marry that person because you are obeying what the Lord said? You can uh, marry anyone you wish, but, but they must belong to the Lord. Oh, he belonged to the Lord. He, he, he kind of sort of liked Jesus. Wrong. Ah, ah. No, no. They're a true disciple as the Bible defines it. Someone that actually astounded you. That was going to make you better together for Jesus than you would have been apart. Like that's what, what God says. That you are to not be yoked unequally with an unbeliever. Oh, but they believe. No, 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 no. Everybody wants to say they believe. Belief is, is probably just as bastardized a term. It's not a curse word, by the way. As, as repentance is. Just want to make that clear. In case you're wondering, you're talking about repentance? You just, well, anyway. But, 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 but it's, it's such a corrupted term. Belief, belief is the destination of repentance. Though the Bible, whenever it talks of the two, it always says repent and believe the good news. That they turn from the worship Bible to, to, to have faith in the living God. Belief is not some anemic, fuzzy thing. Belief is this radical, enduring state of a repentant faith. Having completely rearranged your life, you now live in that mindset moving forward. That's what Abraham is doing as he operates under faith. And by the way, if that person that you're yoked with did not have a repentant, radical transformation, reborn into Jesus, living it out, well then, don't, don't, don't you dare undermine all that Jesus does to call that faith. Or to call that repentance. Or to call that belief. When it is nothing of the sort, and my goodness, it's just you trying to build a case for self, 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 Rather than, all right, maybe the Holy Spirit is trying to help me to see here more clearly. Praise God. And by the way, yes, it takes a sledgehammer to kind of open our eyes to realize that we need repentance in our life. But once we surrender over, it doesn't require a sledgehammer anymore. At that point, then, it's just like, okay, let's see what God has in store for me and let's run after it. You know the old phrase, if it ain't broke, you won't fix it. Well, too many of us are trying to claim it ain't broke. But if we just would claim, okay, all right, now that I see this in light of the Bible, yes, it's broke. And guess what? God is ready to fix it and make it glorious. Really stupendous. My second point. Produce fruit that proves repentance. You know, the, the, the depiction in that slide right there is of an altar. An altar that God would have commanded. An altar of unhewn stones. One that is just arranged by hand without tools. And it seems as though that was the altar that Abraham had been making. And this is the altar which he now goes back to again. And makes as he has this special devotion. It is a depiction of his devotion to the Lord. As he returns where he had first built an altar. Verse 4. And then calls on the name of the Lord. When there is repentance, there is something rather remarkable. Now here's what's kind of ironic and interesting, is that in the New Testament, repentance is most associated with one fiery preacher coming to prepare the way for Jesus by trying to get people to repent. And his name is John the Baptist. He's the last in a long line of Old Testament prophets. The first prophet, by the way, that is described as a prophet in the Old Testament is Abraham. Matter of fact, in Genesis 20, we'll see that he's called a prophet at that point. The last of the prophets is John the Baptist. And, and look at what, what John the Baptist says as crowds come out to him wanting to get their lives together with God. As they're coming out to him, many of them very religious, as a matter of fact, he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, show me evidence 
that there's repentance in your life. Everybody can kind of claim, oh, I've had a transformation of my heart and mind and soul. The disposition of my very will has been redirected towards something so much more glorious and grand and greater than myself. It's now all about Jesus. John the Baptist is waiting patiently as we describe all of this and says, uh, show me the money. Not literally, but you know, Jerry Maguire. It's like, yeah, I feel so much. Well then, let's see something. I want to see a little something, something, if this is really what's going on, right? If this is really the case, then let's see the evidence. He's not trying to bring about some sort of a works-based approach to pleasing God, but he's trying to keep us from being fooled by our own wonderful intentions to be able to look at with great clarity what our intentions really are by our actions. I've, I've said this before, that we, in our deceit, we judge other people all the time by their actions. But we don't judge ourselves by that. We judge ourselves by our intentions. Yes, I may have, sure, cheated on a few tests and cheated on a few women. And yeah, but, but in my heart of hearts, I'm kind of a good guy. You know, I said, right? I mean, that's the warped craziness of, of how it is that we sort of try to judge ourselves. Well, John the Baptist realizes. My goodness, are you going to take that paradigm and try to figure out yourself by that? No, that'll get you nowhere. How about we just look at the evidence of such intentions? So he says, show me the fruit. Show me the fruit. Really? You, you, you now live for me instead of... Well, then tell me about the purity of your, of your relationship. Tell me what it was like when the two of you were courting. Tell me what it's like now, even as, as, as you go about kind of in your workplace, being able to really live for him rather than for yourself. What, what does that look like? Show me something that actually says that. And, and interestingly, the crowds, he anticipates, are going to throw up a, uh, an excuse. And they're going to say, ah, yeah, 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 you can demand all of that, John the Baptist, but we're the people of Abraham. We are children of Abraham. Ironic, because Abraham actually showed evidence of repentance. Matter of fact, there's not a lot of ink spilled on these pages about the contrition or state of Abraham's heart. It just goes right to the matter of, and he got after it. He built altars, he served the Lord, he got back into the promised land, and he stayed there from that point on. Lived in tents, rearranged his life, but he did it all. Why? Because he had real repentance in his life. Then if you're kind of maybe wondering, ah, did I repent? Did I not repent? The way he described it before seems so kind of, I don't know, bigger than I had imagined. But maybe that was really my heart. You don't want to know if you did or didn't? Look at your actions. Did you have a consistent trajectory of actions that aligned themselves with repentance, with Jesus being Lord rather than self? Uh, later on, uh, oh, I, I've got the, the wrong reference there. Uh, later on in, in Ephesus, this is actually to um, this is from Jesus to the church in, in uh, Ephesus. This is actually Revelation two. I think it's verses three and four. He comes back to a church that has actually been founded by Paul, shepherded by Timothy, and then later shepherded, probably at this point, by the apostle John. And Jesus comes back to this church, and he says, "You know, I've got this against you. You have forsaken the love." That you loved with at first. Consider how far you've fallen. And by the way. When you start to have that sort of consideration. 
Here's how you'll know if you've loved the way you did it first. Repent and do the things you did at first. You want to know if you love the way you loved at first? Well, then do the things you did at first. I think for any of us too, it's so easy in our Christian walk to become in different ways quite kind of either anemic or less zealous or overly familiar with what it is to kind of live the Christian life. And in the midst of that, we may be doing some good things, but, but Jesus says, no, 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 no. If you want to know if your heart is ablaze the way that it was when it was at first, that's what I want from you. I want that love. I want that love all the time. That's my love that I have for you. You, you want a, a loving God? Well, you got one. And this loving God is a consuming fire, not some sort of a, a b- b- benevolent, I don't know, sleep at the switch deity that just hopes for the best in you. No, I am a consuming fire of love. And I'm going to be in your life kind of more like, not like a mother, but a smother. That's my love that I'm going to be involved with as I live with you. And so Jesus brings us back to that church in Ephesus and he says, get back to that love. That's where we're meant to be. You and me, we got a thing going on. So do the things you did at first. And I I think for all of us, what does that look like? What were those things you did first? For Abraham, it's clear. It was, I am going to go ahead and march through this promised land in the sight of the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hittites and the Hivites, all of them as they're about me. And I'm going to go ahead and worship God, set up altars to God right in front of their own idolatrous worship centers. I'm going to claim the land for God. I'm going to trust in the promise for God. I am going to consider the fact that my body's as good as dead, but not waver in unbelief regarding the promise of Isaac that would ultimately to come. And so I, I think for us too, as, as we really do consider this, that we need to take a moment and consider when God let the scales fall from your eyes, when you really knew the joy of saying, Jesus is Lord, and what that looked like as you lived it out, well, that's what God always wants from us. That's the relationship that Jesus always wants from us. Let's not look at Abraham's example here and say, well, good on him and good on my son, who I'm glad is here at service today so that he can hear this passage. My, my uh, uh, friend from work is, is I think, uh, maybe here as well. I don't want to turn around and stare at him right now or else it'll get really awkward. But nonetheless, I, I think he's here. I'm so glad he's here. How about me? How about you? And all of us, this is what Jesus wants from every one of us. What does it look like when we loved it first? And then finally... There is rejoicing in heaven for repentance. Uh, You know, at the end, he says to Abraham, this is where God begins to speak again. All the land that you see, I'm going to give it to you. I want you, it's kind of like test me on this. Walk around. Extend your horizons. Look north, look south, look east, look west. Go ahead. Go ahead and challenge what it is that I'm saying to you, you imagine all this is coming your way, Abraham. You are back with me. You are my boy. We got it going on. Your worship is such a pleasing alignment, again, with the refreshing relationship that I want to give you when you repent and turn from your sins. This is, this is what we've been wanting to do from the start, Abraham. Here come the blessings. Here they come. Same for any of us. But, but for Abraham to be able to get the promise, even to say, you know what? Your offspring... I know you're getting old, but your offspring, they're going to be like the dust of the earth. 
Which, by the way, is inspiring, but also, I think, a little bit too moderating. Because, remember, the curse was, you know, from dust you came to dust you'll soon return. Don't forget that you're merely dust. But nonetheless, your offspring, ha, huh, it is going to be incredible. And, and likewise, you know, when Jesus tries to describe to us what happens in repentance, it isn't, okay, when you come back, when you get back to the promised land, when you get back with me, you know what's going to happen? Okay, this is going to happen at first. I'm going to roll up a newspaper and I'm going to smack you on the nose. I just have to do it a couple times. Because I'm a little bit frustrated with you. And I also think it'll kind of cement our relationship a little bit. All right? So come, come on back. See? It'll be like that. Here, one more time. See? That's what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen. Right? That is not the description of repentance ever by Jesus. As a matter of fact, this is a phrase from Jesus. There will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Abraham's repentance set off the wings of angels into a flurry of celebration. Trumpets sounding over one man who repents. And that same celebration occurs waiting for you as well. With that simple turn, that simple surrender, that simple realignment from I am Lord to Jesus is Lord. And the depth and the beauty of what goes with that of a God-ordained metanoia repentance that really could be ours. But on a side note, by the way, Lot goes down to Sodom in the midst of all of this. And it's a different story, isn't it? And it will be a different story. And, you know, it's, it's kind of perilous to move closer to Sodom if you want to keep out of Sodom. But he goes. And it's also useless to claim that you're going to Sodom to preach to the Sodomites when you're going there for selfish gain. If you know what I mean. A lot of people will say, hey, you know, I, you know what I think I'm going to do? Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to move out to Franklin because... I want 10 acres and a mule. I want to be able to have land spreading out far and wide. I didn't mean that as a, a racial reference, sorry. But I just had to see that. Just a phrase came to mind. Edit mark for the tape. Anyway, but, 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 I, but, but I, I want to I have a bucolic setting of, of being able to you know, watch my kids kind of run for days through my land. And, 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 and you know, by the way, when I get there, I'm going to preach the gospel. You're not going to Franklin to preach the gospel. You're going to Franklin to feather your own nest. You're not taking that job you know, up the road because that's where you think God is going to most effectively use you to preach Jesus. You're going there because it works out best for yourself. So it must have been quite surprising for the Sodomites to see a man like Lot coming to their neighborhood. Because it says in 2 Peter that he was vexed in his soul by the godlessness and the unrighteousness of those wretched Sodomites. But yet, it must have been odd for them to see him come into their neighborhood. And it also probably made them think more adversely about the religion that he proclaimed. And you know what else it probably did? Probably rendered them impervious, calloused, of any influence from him as well. And I, I think there, there are a lot of churches right now, even in our fellowship, 
where a lot of people have gone there claiming that I'm, I'm here now because this is where I'm going to live out Jesus as Lord and this is the will of my life. But in fact, they made that move because they at their core said, I am Lord. And that example is going to be able to have no Holy Spirit impact when they tell their story about why it is they moved and, and why it is that they're, they're heading after those things. That we need to be really serious about living our lives for Jesus. Abraham does. And in the midst of that, there is celebration, there is joy, there is gifting, there is a, a, a kind of a re-cementing of a relationship and a worship that is all reinforced. That's what awaits every one of us. There is nothing but the celebration of God, the reaffirmation of God running up to you. Jesus in Luke 15 says this phrase. Later he says when the prodigal son comes home, kind of wondering, oh, what's it going to be like when I come back to the father? Well, before he can even say a word, God is so delighted by our sincere repentance that he rushes to you, to the son, throws his arms around him, kisses him on the neck, buys the, the greatest robe, puts it on his back, puts the, the ring of honor on his finger, says, let's have a feast and celebrate, kill the fattened calf. This son of mine was lost and is found again. You could imagine the heavenly court saying that with Abraham. And I hope that you would want nothing less than that as the heavenly courts regard you. Amen. And to conclude, here's the charge. Grab somebody. It's too hard to and not analyze ourselves in this. That's why the word confession is, is even a word that means a public statement, not just one that you kind of quietly say just to God. Uh, but exohomologia, confess, repent, return, rejoice. Figure out who that's going to be with this week. Connect and let the full bounty of God be realized again in your life. Amen.